Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. church just want to welcome everyone it's nice to see people seated here and also in the balcony and uh, uh, just want to welcome everyone and those who are here for the first time and those who are watching online as brother Bruno correctly said we are in the seventh month and we are into the seventh chapter of the gospel of John it's not bad isn't it we are going at a good pace so today we are looking at verses 1 to 13. So if you have your Bibles, I would strongly encourage you to open the Bibles. It's nothing like looking at the Word and let the Word speak to us. Now you are not here to listen to me. You want what the Word is telling you. So let's open the Bibles. If you don't have Bibles, there are Bibles in the pews. You can always grab them. I've given the title for today's message as, Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? So, if I ask that question to you, what would be your answer? Now, there are some responses I read that came from some college students. And they said, one person said, Jesus was a man who thought he was God. Another response was, Jesus Christ is a pure essence of energy. It's something that's not known. Jesus had some beautiful ideas. Another person said he lived 2,000 years ago and he was interested in the betterment of all classes of people. And it, go, and it goes on. But most people were just confused and the answer was, I have no idea. I don't know. And Hindus believed that Jesus was a holy man. And the Buddhists believed that Jesus was an enlightened man. And the New Age maintained Jesus was a wise moral teacher. And the Muslims believe that Jesus is to be revered and respected, and he was a prophet, a prophet who is coming back. So who is Jesus to you, and what is your view? So in today's text, we are going to see three views of Jesus from his own brother's perspective, from the perspective of the Jews, and from the perspective of the multitude, of the people. But first, let us understand the context. Otherwise, we cannot get into the passage. In order to do that, we need to recap what we learned in the previous chapter. Now, throughout chapter 5 and 6, we heard being preached, we saw Jesus' dramatic claim on Christological claim. We saw that. We saw in, specifically in chapter 6, we saw the miracle of the five loaves and two fish, and also Jesus walking on water. We also saw last week Jesus was sharing the recipe for everlasting life, as well as the offering of his flesh and blood to eat and drink. And chapter 6 concludes with some disciples seemingly offended by what Jesus said about his own flesh and blood as nourishment. But Jesus tells them what's true is true, but they are free to go, and we find at the very end of chapter 6, quite a few of them did depart, and 12 disciples remained. 
As we come to chapter 7 and 8, we have to look at that together. Uh, they, uh, both chapters spell out some incidents at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And that it shows the mounting opposition of Jesus. Why? All because of his Christological claim, claiming himself to be God. And it's about six months after this feast that Jesus was crucified. I just want you to get this picture clearly. With that intro, let's dive into today's passage. Verse number one. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. For he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. The phrase after these things does not necessarily mean just immediately after. It is just giving us some reference point that the sequence of events. That's what it means. But as we, but John fills in the gap by adding, what is he saying here? Jesus was walking in where? In Galilee. For he was unwilling to walk in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So as I told you earlier, why do they seek to kill him? Because of the Sabbath controversy. You remember the story? When the Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on a Sabbath day. Not only that, his subsequent Christological claim. And we saw in chapter 6, the disciples moved away from him. So John gives us the time period between chapter 6 and 7 in, in the next verse. In verse number 2, he talks about a festival here. He says, now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. What do we take from that church? Why does he tell us this? There is a gap of roughly six months from the events of chapter 6 and the events that are happening in chapter 7. Because what happened in chapter 6 we don't have time to look at that. The feeding of the 5,000 happened during the Sabbath, uh, during the Passover. And now we are looking at the Feast of Tabernacles. So church, I want you to understand this. There are three great Jewish feasts in Jerusalem that every male is expected to be at. The Passover in the spring. Then they have the Pentecost 50 days after Passover. And the Feast of Tabernacles, in some of the translations, called the Feast of Booths. They mean the same thing. In the fall, it's about six months after. Now, the Passover pictures the Lord's death for our sins as our Passover lamb. The Pentecost foreshadowed the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But the Feast of Tabernacles that we are looking at today, or the Feast of the Booths, it serves for dual purposes. Number one, is to remember the Israel's time in the wilderness when they lived in booths and to rejoice before the Lord after harvest. Number two, to looking forward to a new exodus, the time when the kingdom of God would be brought in with all its blessings. That is what the Feast of Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths simply means. So the Feast of Tabernacle of Booths was the most joyful of the three pilgrim feasts that you're looking at. So in Jesus' time, it included pouring out water 
as a remembrance of the water from the rock that sustained Israel in the wilderness. You know the story about that, how Moses messed up there. And then a candle lighting ceremony to that memorialized God's presence with Israel through the pillar of cloud and fire. So church, verses 1 to 3 actually set the stage for the rest of the chapters, chapters 7 and 8. But it also reveals, when you look at this very carefully, some flawed views about Jesus by various groups of people. So this morning I just want to look at those flawed views of three different group of people. Also church, as you really carefully look at these verses, it also reveals who re Jesus is really. He is both the Messiah and the Lord. Can we say the word Messiah? and the Lord, and the Lord. That's who Jesus is, which actually fits into the purpose why Apostle John wrote this gospel, because his purpose is that we would believe in him as Christ and the Son of God, that we may have eternal life in his name, isn't it? So this morning, we are going to look at the three groups, his brothers, the Jews, and the multitude, and see what lessons that we can learn. First look at the brothers, the views of the brothers. Verse number three. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Galilee, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Firstly, it's important for us to understand who these brothers are. Church, the reference to Jesus' brothers, these are the sons that Mary and Joseph had after the birth of Jesus. Let's be clear on this. So in other words, these brothers are stepbrothers for the Lord Jesus Christ. Although they were unbelieving at this point, we know at least two of them in the Bibles. Who are they? James and Jude. Two people that we know very clearly. Jesus appeared to James after resurrection and James became the head or the leader of the Jerusalem church. And he wrote a great epistle, which is known as the wisdom book of the New Testament, which was what? The book of James. And then we have Jude. He very humbly identifies himself as what? The servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Another translation is the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wrote the, the, the epistle of Jude. Now, the conversion of the other brothers, no, the names are not given in the Bible. But church, I am convinced that if one person in the household is saved, please listen carefully, with time and by his grace, the entire household will come to know the Lord. As Paul and Silas told the jailer in Acts 16.31, they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He's talking only to the jailer. And he didn't stop there. He went on to say, you and your household. So if you are only, if you are the only believer in your household, have hope. Pray for them. The entire household will come to know the Lord in his time according to his perfect will. So see what the brothers were saying here in verse number three. They are telling Jesus, Jesus, let me give you a counsel. Let us give you a counsel. You need to go public in, in, in Judea where it really counts. 
Please don't waste time in Galilee. That's what they're saying here. And why are they saying that? The answer is found in verse number 4. Look at that. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So church, we see in the verses 3 and 4, Jesus' brothers offer him some unsolicited career advice. Jesus was not asking for any advice. From their worldly, unbelieving view, you can see what type of advice they are giving. Jesus, you need to leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples will see your works that you are doing. That may be a good public display for you. It implies that they, that may draw you fame and name. If you go to Jerusalem, amongst your people and amongst, the, amongst your disciples. Their motives may be understood when you read the next verse. Look at verse number 5. John explains, for even his brothers did not believe him. They didn't believe him. Galilee is not the place for you, Jesus. We know you are something good about you. Go to Jerusalem. You have a larger group. See, they don't believe him, but yet Jesus is their brother. So based on this verse, church, we cannot say for sure what motives lay behind the brother's comment. There could be one of three. It could be that it may be a sarcastically ridiculing to Jesus, saying, you want to be famous, go to Jerusalem, do some miracles, and you'll hit the big run. You can do it. Or it could be motivated by the family shame. Because Jesus was respected to some degree, there was some popularity, now he's losing his disciples. If you went up to Jerusalem, probably you can get them back. Or it could be a sincere but worldly advice. It could be sincere. If you want your messianic claims to be made known, you need to go to prove yourself to the religious authorities. So go. Or maybe church, come along with me please. These brothers have witnessed Jesus' miracle. They may be thinking, could this be the political messiah? I mean, the thoughts would have crossed their minds. If you are the political messiah, you need to go. Go to Jerusalem. That's where you can establish with the Jewish authorities, with the masses, not in these villages in Galilee. Church, but their views, as we can see, is based on their advice was based on their view about Jesus, which are worldly, unbelieving view. A complete misunderstanding of Jesus' divine origin and his mission. You know, to some degree, as you study this, the advice of the brothers was similar to the temptation that Jesus, that Satan put before Jesus. What did Satan say? Satan said, if you jump off the pinnacle of this temple, let the angels carry you, and then everyone will see it, and then what? They'll be astonished and they'll bow before you. It's a public display. You will draw the crowd. So the brothers here are saying, go to Jerusalem, do a few more spectacular miracles, and everyone will follow you. It was a worldly, is a wise 
publicity and marketing strategy, but if you really understand that, it is satanic at its core. So there is a life application for us here, church. How do you expand your ministry? How do you expand it? I want to take some time on this thought because there's a lot to take from this. There are plenty of people today who try to build their ministries or churches through worldly methods of publicity and marketing. A lot of churches are doing that. By bringing the so-called faith healers or miracle workers into the church and attracting people so the question is, how do we promote our ministries and our faith? If only we understand the difference between Christianity and other religions, then we'll be able to promote effectively church. If we have the proper view of Jesus, we can promote effectively. In all other religions, please understand, God is impersonal. Everybody say the word impersonal. Impersonal. But in Christianity, we meet God in Jesus. Amen? Amen. We meet God in Jesus. Christianity is not a, re a religion. It's a relationship. Church, a personal relationship with God. Relationships are not marketed. They are earned. Relationships cannot be demanded. They are commanded. I cannot demand love from my wife. I have to command it by my behavior. Isn't it? How do we command, you ask? It all depends on who we are to God. You know, Paul writes so beautifully, we see this in, in 2 Corinthians 2.15, for we are to God the fragrance of Christ. Everybody say the word fragrance of Christ. Fragrance of Christ among Two groups of people for, for who are being saved and among who are perishing. Who are the fragrance of Jesus? We, you and I. And, and how effective this could be, look at verse number 16. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death. And to the other the aroma of life leading to life. We are the fragrance of Christ. So by our life, by our walk, we lead people in the path of righteousness. You know, I strongly believe if I have a scent bottle or a perfume bottle, if I want to sell it, I can stand here in front of you and take the perfume bottle and talk about this for one hour. I can tell you where this was made and, and what the ingredients or what, were, what, what the composition is. And explaining to you how, what Hollywood actors are wearing all this. It means nothing to you. Instead, how do, I, how do I sell this? Just spray it on me. And what do I do? I just walk by your side. If the fragrance emits from me, what are you going to say? Pastor, what is that you are wearing? Do you get it, church? That is what fragrance of Christ means. It's not your talk, it's your walk. It's your walk. So let me ask you, church, and it might make you feel guilty, when was the last time someone was influenced by your walk, not by your talk? 
When was the last time someone asked you, how can you be so peaceful in the midst of this storm? When was the last time someone asked you, how can you forgive him or her who stabbed you on your back? When was the last time someone asked you, how do you put up in this abusive environment at work? When was the last time someone asked you, why do you still show compassion to these consistently offending you? When was the last time someone asked you, how do you why do you go the extra miles to those who offend you and talk ill about you? Understand this church. You do not promote just like some so-called Christians by saying, come to Jesus for healing and prosperity and for jobs. We promote by the testimony of our lives. By the testimony of our lives. They will know we are Christian by our walk. By our walk. By our love. Let's keep reading. Verse number 6. And 8, to eight and 9 together. In verse number 6 he says, then Jesus said to them, My time has not come, brothers. That is my adding to that, this one. But your time is always ready. So Jesus replied to the brothers, is, yeah, Listen, guys, the time is not ready for me to go now. You're asking me to go? I'm not ready. And then in verses 8 to 9, we see Jesus tells his brothers, You go up to the feast. You go. I'm not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he has said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So what is Jesus saying here? The context in, the, in this makes it clear that he meant, I'm not going with you because it is not the Father's time for me to go. That's what it means. Jesus is saying, I must go at the time and the manner that my Father directs me to go. It's not it's not on depends on me, it depends on my father. So John is showing Jesus' firm resolve to do the father's will, not the will of his unbelieving brothers, even if they meant well. Let's keep reading. Verse number 10. Watch carefully, church. Verse number 10, John writes something that Jesus did which became an issue for the skeptics. You had to come along with me. Don't get lost in this journey. Verse 10. We're going to read that together. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to where? Feast. Not openly, but it were in what? Secret. Wow. So church, the question is, did Jesus lie to his brothers? Good question to ask, isn't it? In verses 6 and 8 we read, Jesus saying he was not going to the feast, but then he went anyway. Some skeptics cite this incident as evidence that Jesus was a mere human not our sinless savior as he claimed to be. Church, this is a classic example of what happens when you take a verse or two out of context. A common mistake many Christians do, and they end up in heretical teaching. You know what, church? I'm not going to give you an answer. 
but I just want to whet your appetite today to dig deeper into the word. I want you to go and do your own research. And my question to you is this, did Jesus lie to the brothers? We know for sure Jesus never lied, isn't it? But it appears to be a lie here. How do you reconcile this? How do you understand this? It's a, it's a homework for the curious theologian seated here. So do it, find the answer, come and talk to me, or let's look at it in our next Bible study. Okay? I know some of you are disappointed. Some good homework for you. Let's go on. So what do we learn from these brothers? They were in close proximity, close proximity to Jesus, to know him as few others do, that they were still unbelieving and lost. You have to understand, Jesus' brothers grew up with Jesus, isn't it? Imagine they would have seen a brother who was sinless. His behavior would have certainly have convicted them. He was different from others. They heard his teaching. They knew that he performed many miracles, but still they did not believe in him. What There is an application for us, church. Listen carefully because you might have experienced that in your own home. You can grow up in a Christian home. You can go to church every week. You can know a lot about Jesus, but not personally believe in Him as your Savior and your Lord. And many of you may be asking the question, why, pastor, some of my children, some of the siblings, some of the parents and relatives have not come to the faith? You know the answer is? Because they have a false view of Jesus. Because they have a false view of Jesus. That's the first group of people you looked at. The second group that we look at is the Jewish leaders. Look at this. Come along with me, please. Verse number one. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because what? Read with me. The Jews sought to kill him. Verse number 11. Please read with me. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? Verse number 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for the fear of the Jews. What do we see in these all three verses? The Jewish leaders had a hostile view of Jesus, that this man Jesus is upsetting our traditions and we need to get rid of him. Isn't it? We know that. Because Jesus threatened their power which they used to control the people through fear. Jesus did not fit their idea of a savior, of a political messiah who would play their political game and reward them with all their nice positions in the kingdom. Imagine the Jewish leaders, if only I can make Jesus as the political messiah, I can be the deputy in command. My brother can be a cabinet minister. And the whole family can occupy the cabinet. When the, he upset the money changers' tables in the temple, and we know we studied that in chapter 2, he threatened their income. So they did not carefully listen to Jesus' teaching or think rationally about the amazing miracles that he was doing. Rather, they reacted emotionally 
because Jesus threatened their comfortable way of life. Church, there's a lesson for all of us. Every one of us. There are many of us today who do not believe in Christ because we react emotionally rather than rationally. We like the comfortable lives that we have. And we want Jesus to honor and give rise in our positions that we already are in. We seek comfort. We seek freedom from the perils of life. So there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. Nothing wrong with that. Unless that comfort makes us seemingly independent of God. Now, when I start to get comfortable in my life, I sometimes unintentionally use that reason to take a break from the Lord. Let me ask you a question. Don't look at my face, please, because I'm not pointing at anybody. When do you call the pastor? When you're uncomfortable. Yes or no? Everybody said? Yes, that is the truth. Don't lie to me because I know I've experienced, Pastor Dio has experienced it. You call when you're uncomfortable. You don't call when you're comfortable. Once the Lord gives what we need, we step down. The intensity by which we were seeking or we sought the Lord begin to diminish. Because we are comfortable. We are all guilty of that. We get so caught up in the blessings, in the answered prayer, the job that God gave us, the house He blessed us with, the partners that God brought into our life, the health that God has restored. We are back on our day-to-day -day routine and we forget about the one who provided all the comforts that we once wanted. It's true, church. It's true. For some, our view of God is somewhat like the Jews. Fix the problem I have. Jesus, come and fix the problem. Just the Jews want freedom from Roman Empire. Relieve me and release me from this burden that I have. Save me from the worldly oppression. Provide me with all that I need for a comfortable life. And then I am going to tell God, God, I will religiously follow all the rituals. He said that. I'll come to church. I'll give my tithes. I'll give some offering. I'll read the daily, by, daily bread. I will say a prayer. I will say amen to all the inspirational post, postings on the Facebook. In return, keep me in my comfort zone, God. It's a form of godliness, church. Outwardly, I want to be pious. Paul puts it so beautifully, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. To the believers, John gives solid instructions in this passage, and we look at it in the book of James as well. Look at this passage. Consider it what? Pure joy. Not when you pass an exam, not when you have bought a house, not when you have found the right partner, not when you have got the right job. Come along with me, please. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when? Whenever, not if. Whenever you face trials of many kinds. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. What do we learn from this church? When we are uncomfortable, that's the time we grow. When we grow, we become closer to our Heavenly Father. Let's challenge ourselves to get a little bit uncomfortable in life. Church, I tell you this and I speak from my heart. For the last about two years, this is my daily prayer. And I printed this in my, in my office room in the house, even in my church office room, and I, I, I read that daily. Let me show this to you. It's a true prayer in the scriptures. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, when I'm comfortable, the songwriter, the Solomon says, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Guilty? Yes. Oh, I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Beautiful prayer, isn't it? I hope this will be our prayer daily now. Meet my needs, God, not my wants. So church, we looked at the false view of the brothers, the false view of the Jews. Let's go to the last, last group of people. Let's read verses 12 and 13. And there was much complaining among the people concerning him, and some said what? He is good. Who is good? Who is good? Jesus is good. And the others said what? No, on the contrary, Jesus, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So now the third group, the multitude, had an inadequate, mixed view of Jesus. One party says he's good, and somebody else says, no, he's leading the people astray. So yet no one was speaking openly for him for the fear of Jews. The word complaining simply here means quietly, they are not openly saying it, debating among themselves because they are afraid to speak openly. The multitudes are divided into two camps. One says he is good. He's a good man. Imagine, church, if Jesus was just a mere good man. For a moment, imagine, come along with me. And not God in human flesh. Imagine for a moment if that is true. All his Christological claims would portray Jesus as obnoxious, arrogant, proud and self-centered, isn't it? Because he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am a good man. I am telling you, what will you think about me? And I am telling you, in the whole Old Testament is written about me. And I am telling you that I am the bread of life. And I am telling you, I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was born, I existed. And it list goes on and on and on. Only the Son of God can claim that. Not a good man. No good man would say this, but only if he is a good man, he must be a misled, pompous, selfish maniac. The other camp thought that Jesus was leading people astray. They were the traditionalists here, who thought the ways of the fathers were good enough. Because they have seen through the Old Testament, they have seen many fathers. If Jesus was a deceiver, he must have been a very good one. Isn't it? Why do I say that? 
at least he was able to convert fiercely monotheistic Jews to believe his claims to be God to the extent church that many of them eventually suffered persecution and martyrdom. You will not die if you are truly not convicted and convinced. So both camps were in error. Neither camp believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Then you ask the question, Pastor, why did this group of people who had the scripture, who heard Jesus' claim and he saw the miracles, did not believe? John gives two answers, church. Look at verse number seven. Why these Jews at the feast did not believe? Jesus tells his brothers, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that it works are evil. That's why they didn't believe. They hated and they did not believe because Jesus confronted their sins. We saw in John chapter 3, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that he, his deeds will be exposed. To come to Jesus, you have to let him confront your sins. You have to turn from your deeds of darkness and learn to walk in the light as he himself is the light for us. The second reason why you do not believe is found in verse number 13. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. They were undecided about Jesus because they feared the religious leaders. That is why. Who would put them out of the synagogue. It was the fear of the Jewish leaders that kept many in the multitude from openly believing in Jesus. Church, you will not be the most popular person at the office or at school or in your in the community if you don't join the world in its sinful behavior. You have to choose the side. Which side are you on? We see two issues here for not believing. First, wanting to blend in with the world. Second, fear of what the people will think if you follow Jesus. So if you want to cover up your sins and blend in with the world, you will not truly believe in Jesus. So it brings back to the question I asked at the very beginning. Who is Jesus to you? The only saving view of Jesus is that he is the Messiah and he is the Lord. Even though it's not openly stated here, church, we can definitely gather that from, the, from this text. We see by the fact that Jesus did not do his own thing, but rather he lived in obedience to the Father's plan. Imagine if Jesus had chosen and he could have been so popular, become the political messiah, and he could have held a very high position. But Jesus was operating on God's timetable, which ultimately led to the cross. John tells us Jesus is the messiah. And secondly, Jesus is the Lord. We see that in verse number 7, where only the Lord can convict us of our sins. Only the Lord can do it. Many of the prophets down the centuries, they had done the same thing, but when they 
spoke about sin, they always identified themselves with the, with the sinners. But Jesus was different. Which of you convicts me of sin? That's what Jesus asked. Because he is the Lord. So as I close this message, there can be three groups of people amongst us. First, like Jesus' brother, if you grew up in the church and have been familiar with Christian teaching all your life, do not be fooled into thinking that you are saved by your familiarity with Jesus. If Jesus' own brothers were not saved by their connection, it shows that no one is saved by familiarity alone. You must personally believe in him as your savior from sin, the one who bore your penalty on the cross. The second group of people can be like the Jews. Do not seek him for your own comfort. You must let him confront you with your sins so that you forsake it and walk in light. Through God's word, Jesus tells us how to think, speak, and act in godly ways. Thirdly, finally, we could be like the multitude. Church, I want us to understand if you believe in Jesus as Savior and the Lord, you must be at war with the world. You are either a friend of the world and an enemy of God, or you are a friend of God and an enemy of the world. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world, for if anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. John's first episode, chapter 2, verse 15. So I want to close by asking this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is he to you? Worship him if you could come. Can we all rise, please, and let me say what a prayer for you before we sing. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message this morning. As we saw the three different groups of people, we can certainly be, be moved from one group to the other at different times in our lives, God. And I pray in Jesus' name that every one of us who are here and who are seated, who are listening online, we will be convicted that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus is the Lord. Help us to have the right view of God so that we will truly accept you as our personal Lord and Savior. If there's anyone amongst us who still has not given his or her life to you, may this be the day of God. Convict us, confront us, and bring us to the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.